say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Targeted, True Crime, Domestic Violence. We'll investigate one case of family violence each season using academic research to interpret the events so that we can become better advocates. I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted. This season, we examine the death of Militia Morgana Gibson, a four-year-old girl who died after days of abuse at the hands of her stepfather, the already convicted child abuser Ronnie Maddox while her mother did little to intervene. Militia's death created a national outcry that demanded improved legislation and rules for social services in order to better protect children who are at risk. In the previous episode, we detailed the abuse and death of little Militia. That was an incredibly hard episode for me to record, and I imagine that many of you had a hard time listening as well. It is important to know what happened, though, or else it would be difficult to understand and apply academic theories. If you haven't listened to the episode yet, you may want to listen to it first before continuing with this episode. As with the entire series, I'm discussing abuse and domestic violence, so listener discretion is advised. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, I'm a professor of communication, and one of the pitfalls, or... um benefits is to see past events as dynamic. Anything that happened in the past in a way doesn't really stay in the past when you study communication because we we start to think about past events in different ways as we grow older, as we learn new things and apply new ideas. In this way, history is not a static concept that everyone interprets the same way or that I continue to interpret in the same way. Just because I understand a particular event one way, say when I was 10 years old, it doesn't stay that way. I change how I think about it now that I'm in my 50s. So this idea in communication, it's dynamic, it's changing, it's fluid. So I approach something that's in the past with my own particular viewpoint, 
But also what's wonderful about communication is that we we share our different ideas and viewpoints with each other and other people's ideas have the power to change and to shape what we previously thought. So what does this all have to do with the Militia Gibson case? Well, my thoughts about this abuse case have shifted dramatically through researching it and are dramatically different than they were back in 1976. I think it's a good conversation for us to have because it changes how I perceive abuse, abusers, and targets. I'm also hoping that it expands your understanding, or at least makes you consider ideas you might not have had before. Many people in Cleveland, Tennessee, hate the mother, Wanda Gibson Maddox, just as much as they hate the stepfather. They interpret her inaction as either evil or inhuman. So, either she liked that Ronnie abused her daughter, and she's evil, or she was a hollow woman who just didn't care about her baby, so she was inhuman. But you know what? She really was not either of those things. I believe that Wanda was a woman who was a prisoner in her own home along with her children. Since one of my goals is to use academic research to explain what was happening in the Maddox home, the first subject we need to discuss is Ronald Maddox. How and why did he behave in this manner, and why did the mother allow it? I believe that Ronald fits the profile of a patriarchal terrorist, also known as an intimate terrorist. This concept was first established in 1995, that's nearly 20 years after Militia died. But it was established when Dr. Michael P. Johnson from Penn State University published an article in the Journal of Marriage and Family called Patriarchal Terrorism and Common Couple Violence. I'll include the citation to this particular article, plus all of the research articles that I mention, on the show's webpage. Dr. Johnson developed the term patriarchal terrorist to keep the focus on the perpetrator and to keep our attention on the systematic, intentional nature of this form of violence. You're probably most familiar with hearing the word terrorist in relationship to an ideological or a political problem. For instance, in the United States, we think of the terrorist attacks in September 2001, when a series of airplanes were hijacked and flown into the Twin Towers in New York City and the Pentagon. Or you might think about uh, the terrorism in France. For instance, the one on Bastille Day in 2016, when a terrorist drove a truck in the middle of a celebrating crowd, killing 86 and injuring hundreds more. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the term terrorist came about during the French Revolution when the Jacobins advocated repression and violence to further their agenda. Repression and violence is exactly what a patriarchal terrorist does. It's important to know that a patriarchal terrorist behaves differently than other types of domestic abusers. About a decade after first publishing about patriarchal terrorism, Dr. Johnson changed the term to intimate terrorist, and many researchers used the term coercive controlling violence to describe the behaviors. 
I'm going to stay with the original terminology used, patriarchal terrorism, to lessen confusion because I think it emphasizes exactly what was going on in the Maddox household. A patriarchal terrorist is known to dispense steady abuse that leads to the ability to control the partner. Whether or not someone is believed to be a patriarchal terrorist is based on their intention to control another person. What's interesting about this is it's not based on the amount of abuse. It's not based on the depth of violence. It's based on their motive to control. And I think that's really important. According to research published in 1979 by Dobash and Dobash, as a terrorist attempts to gain control in one area, they'll use many different control tactics. Of course, violence is one of the tactics used by the terrorist, but it's generally because the violence is an attempt to gain or regain control. It's not because the abusers lost their temper and flipped out because they were so angry. This type of domestic violence is less about losing one's temper and more about trying to establish or regain power. Of course, sometimes losing one's temper does become a part of it, and some that frustration comes from the terrorist being thwarted or feeling thwarted that they don't have the control that they want to have at that moment. According to a follow-up 2006 study by Dr. Johnson, patriarchal terrorists may also be abusive in other ways, such as using children in a part of an overall coercive campaign. When I interviewed Militia's foster mother, with whom Militia had lived for three years, she made a rather profound observation. She said that Ronnie punished the mother by hurting the children, and he punished the children by hurting their mother. He wasn't abusing the mother and the children because he was mad at them. He was abusing them to control them. There are many of his actions that clearly establish this coercive control. If you remember, he nailed shut all of the windows in their house as well as the back door. He set up a big easy chair by the front door, and he was the one who decided who could come in and out. The children were rarely seen outside of the house except to do chores. He also isolated the family by not allowing others to come into the house. In many ways, this home was very much like a prison. As patriarchal terrorism is applied in this case, there's a few other ideas to consider. Ronnie may have targeted militia because he was feeling out of control at that particular moment. As many people with kids can tell you, adults don't have a lot of control over potty training and about nighttime bedwetting accidents. No matter how much we wish that toddlers won't wet the bed, or how much we plan to carefully reduce the possibility of bedwetting, in the end, we can't control children's bodies. And we can see how Ronnie's abuse started that particular day with the loss of control over Militia wetting the bed, her waking him up in the middle of the night, and how his actions were targeted at trying to regain control of this situation. He designed the marching to tire her out so she would sleep that night. He designed the physical abuse, hitting her with a bat 
when she slowed down because he wanted to make sure Missy was as tired as possible. He refused to give her water, and I think this was to avoid hydrating her, again to try to control her body, because how can a child have a nighttime bedwetting episode if they don't have anything in their bladder? So the pattern of abuse that day was likely more about regaining control and less about punishing Missy. Although it was probably also about punishing Wanda, the mother, because she had not successfully potty trained Militia, and this was trying to establish control over Wanda so that she would be motivated to make sure her children were more compliant, better trained in the future. Overall, I think abusing Missy was not just about gaining control of that four-year-old, but also about maintaining control over every person in the house. Ronnie needed this exercise in control to be witnessed by his wife and the other children because it increases the probability that they would be more compliant to him in the future. We've established that patriarchal terrorists will use violence as one means of control, but they have additional methods as well. Essentially, this type of abuser has a lot of tools in their toolbox to control others. Other examples of things that they might use include threats, economic control, where they control the money in the house, uh, emotional abuse, where they're beating someone down, uh, causing them to feel uh, worthless. They will also create isolation, and they will use privilege and punishment as well. And that privilege and punishment, the punishment doesn't have to be a physical punishment. It could also be taking away an, a reward. Forcing Missy to drink hot sauce is another form of abuse. It's a form of punishment that's not violent in and of itself, but make no mistake, it is abusive. And this was actually a topic that had been discussed in the United States quite a bit in the year preceding Militia's death. There was an infamous Missouri child abuse case in the news in 1975, which is the year before Militia's death, when Ronald Healy was convicted of child abuse for an ongoing pattern of torture and abuse of his girlfriend's son. One of the techniques was forcing his girlfriend's son to drink hot sauce. This is another case that I remember hearing about, even though I was only nine or ten at the time. And that case had been talked about quite a bit. It was in a lot of news reports. And I'm betting that Ronnie would have known that forcing a child to drink hot sauce would be unacceptable. As an interesting side note, there's two types of patriarchal terrorists. One type, which doesn't match Ronnie Maddox very well, will exercise control out of an emotional dependence because he or she does not want to lose their partner. Once the control is thwarted, the target will most likely leave, so the abuser creates a situation where the target feels little agency or, another way to put that, little ability to make personal choices. This type of abuser may only be abusive inside the home, and it can be difficult for others to observe. I think Ronnie was the second type of patriarchal terrorist, a person who has a more generalized attitude of wanting everything to be their way most of the time, because that's how Ronnie behaved. Do you remember the sign that was in his house? 
This is my home, and I do as I darn please. That attitude is a hallmark of this type of abuser. The abusive behavior may be observed by coworkers, friends, and extended family more easily. Although, when you're in public, it may be a more subtle form of abuse than what is experienced at home. And it was notable enough that the prosecutors in the case even brought that note that Ronnie had tacked up in the house as part of the evidence against him. I know most of us wonder why Wanda Maddox didn't just leave. There's a lot of information about this as well. Authors Leonie Johnson and Cohen write that the physical and sexual violence associated with a pattern of control, such as what we see in this case, will effectively entrap a victim in the relationship. It creates an overwhelming sense of fear. It diminishes the victim's personal resources, such as confidence, self-esteem, finances, and support networks. But overall, why Wanda didn't leave is a much larger subject, and I'll cover it more thoroughly in another episode when we focus on her in particular and try to understand her behavior. There are many more studies about patriarchal terrorism in family relationships, and I started to include more of them, but I think it ended up being mind-numbingly boring, so I decided to trim it down. You can let me know if I've struck the right balance or if I need to reduce how many sources I cite or if I should expand the research citations. Before leaving the subject of patriarchal terrorism, I want to address one other issue. I had a little bit of hesitancy to talk a lot about Ronald Maddox and his pattern of abuse, but I decided to discuss his behavior specifically. He was convicted of second-degree murder, and there was ample proof in the trial, including physical evidence and multiple witness testimony to support his conviction. Where my concern comes in is the family of Ronald Maddox. Not malicious family, but Ronald Maddox's birth family and all of those who survive him today. The town where Militia died is fairly small, and family members still live here, despite being subjected to hate, derision, and contempt. It is not easy for them. It wasn't easy in the 1970s, and it is not easy for them today. They did not commit a crime, though. They didn't even publicly support Ronald Maddox in his crime. And as far as I can tell, they didn't do anything themselves to deserve the shabby treatment they still endure. As a whole, the Maddox family has been remarkably silent over the years. And while they've been quiet, I notice there's a few poignant moments that the public can see. They did love their brother, Ronnie. How do I know this? As Ronnie's brothers and sisters passed away over the years, most included Ronnie in their obituaries as a surviving sibling. One thing I recognize is that by publishing this podcast, it is possible that the Maddox family will experience renewed hate from others once again. Uh, you who are listening to me, please leave the Maddox family alone. Don't bother them. Anything I discuss about this case is not directed at the remaining Maddoxes. They shouldn't suffer because of it. 
I did reach out multiple times, however, through various intermediaries to see if anyone from the Maddox family would be willing to speak with me. No one was. I wish I could provide a voice for the Maddox family, but I respect that they did not wish to participate. So while what I discuss may be painful for the surviving Maddox family, patriarchal terrorism is an important topic, and I think more people should know Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill about it. As we wind down the episode, let's talk about now. What good does it do to know if Ronald Maddox was likely a patriarchal terrorist? Well, I believe there are people around you who live in just such a situation. Maybe your friend or family member is a terrorist. Maybe your friend or family member lives in a family where there is a patriarchal or intimate terrorist. Maybe it's you. If you've ever wondered if someone is involved in an abusive relationship, you may think it's only important to keep an eye out for physical injuries. You may look for obviously unexplained black eyes or bruised lips, multiple broken bones, and all of these can be warning signs, but they're not the only warning signs. What you can learn is that you also want to look for signs of control. So if it's someone you know, you may not witness physical abuse, but you might glimpse some signs of controls if you're looking for it. Let's pretend for a moment that you're concerned for a friend. One of the familiar signs is that targets do not have a lot of control over their time and schedules. Does your friend's partner always need to know where he or she is? Does your friend have to return home directly after work to avoid the partner becoming mad? Does your friend freak out if there is a traffic jam because their partner might not believe why they are late? Does the partner call your friend multiple times throughout the day, a couple times an hour, to keep tabs on where he or she is? Another sign is a target making excuses and providing face-saving for the abuser, even though the abuser is behaving inappropriately. Have you seen the partner getting upset at something happening in public, and suddenly it becomes your friend's job to calm the partner down? And then afterwards, does your friend make excuses for the partner? So let me describe how this might look in a real-world scenario. Imagine that you see your friend and your friend's family at the grocery store. When you stop to exchange pleasantries for a moment, hey, how you doing? Great. Looks like it might snow today. So while you're talking, your friend's kid swings the grocery cart, accidentally hits it against some canned goods that then clatter to the floor. What happens? Whose fault is it? Most people... Both the husband and the wife will swing into action, picking up the mess, and either scold the child or or laugh it off. But in a relationship with coercive control, the response might be very different. 
Does the partner blame your friend for not keeping an eye on the child? Does the partner behave as if slighted? Is the partner unreasonably mad? Does the partner expect your friend to clean it up alone? Does your friend make excuses to explain why the partner is mad or why the partner isn't helping? And then do you feel like you need to get out of there quickly because it's so uncomfortable? So this is an example of some of the questions you might ask and what it might look like in the real world. Sometimes you need to look for control issues, not for physical abuse. It's also important for you to know that getting away from a terrorist abuser is not easy. I also want you to know that it is not your job to make that happen. It's not your job to make the target leave the abuser. However, you can provide educated support. There are some intricate nuances to leaving a terrorist, and it's best for professionals to work with the target. Most importantly, I don't recommend that you challenge the abuser, as this is likely to lead to punishment for your friend once they're alone again. So what can you do? When your friend is momentarily away from the abuser, you could privately provide information about local domestic violence resources. You could provide transportation or child care for your friend if needed. You can listen to your friend and don't become upset if they don't decide to leave right away. If you're speaking privately with your friend, it is okay to express that their partner's behavior is not acceptable, but realize that your opinions are probably not going to cause any immediate changes in how your friend thinks. Patience is really important because it takes on average about seven attempts for a target to leave an abuser for good. All abusive situations cause damage to the targets in some way, be it physical, emotional, or spiritual. Patriarchal terrorists, though, are likely to cause more severe symptoms. Quoting from Dr. Johnson's 2006 article, quote, Victims of intimate terrorism are attacked more frequently and experience violence that is less likely to stop. They are more likely to be injured, to exhibit more of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress syndrome, to use painkillers or tranquilizers, and to miss work. Maybe you're listening to me, and this describes the dynamics of your own relationship. If that's the case, I want you to remember that you are not at fault. You are a target. Someone chooses to abuse you. You are a strong person, and you can be praised for your resilience thus far. If you or someone you know is in a relationship such as this, please seek specific help for your situation. Even a basic Google search will provide you with local resources, or you can use the resources on the show's webpage at targetedpodcast.com. You can join our closed Facebook group by searching for Targeted Podcast and requesting to join. I do recommend deleting search histories and some of your browser history so that a partner can't find the information, and instead click on some typical benign websites, you know, news pages or gardening, whatever types of things you might normally look at in your everyday life, so you create a history that doesn't create problems. 
Thank you so much for joining me for our first academic episode. If you're looking to discuss this issue with others, please join our closed Facebook group called Targeted Podcasts. Just request to join and you will be approved. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast as well on iTunes. I was thrilled to get my first reviews from Toby Tiget and Jersey Girl Jersey Cat. Thank you. Please be kind to me on iTunes as I am just starting out. But I am interested in constructive criticism. My email is targetedpodcast at gmail.com. Join me for our next episode where we turn our attention to the mother and examine her background to see the risk factors in her life that made her an attractive target. Together, let's discover how academic research might help us understand the events of a few decades ago so that we can better help others today. And peace be with you, my friends. Peace. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.